You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Former Minneapolis Mayor Betsy Hodges joins the Post to discuss her view that white liberals were often the obstacle to change during her tenure and how cities can best move forward. Let's listen. Good afternoon. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for the Washington Post. In the wake of the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, nationwide demonstrations were unleashed. A powerful op-ed appeared in the New York Times with this headline, as a mayor of Minneapolis, I saw how white liberals block change. The author of that piece was Betsy Hodges, the 47th mayor of Minneapolis. And Mayor Hodges, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. So let me read uh, a, a little bit of what you wrote, a very little bit of what you wrote in that New York Times op-ed. You wrote, white liberals, despite believing we are saying and doing the right things, have resisted the syst systemic changes our cities have needed for decades. You go on to write, nowhere is this dynamic of preserving white comfort at the expense of others more visible than in policing. Talk more about that. One of the things I've learned over time and doing work, thinking about whiteness and white people is that whiteness wants comfort, it doesn't want change. And on the left, the way that looks is we want the comfort of feeling like we're doing something about the racism that we know is in the world and our, the fact that our whiteness is, is based on that. Uh, but we don't want to be thrust into the discomfort of actually changing how we go about our lives. And so we often, as white liberals, will support things that make us feel better, feel like we're doing something, but don't actually change outcomes meaningfully for people of color and indigenous people. And so when you were mayor of Minneapolis, can you give a, a specific instance uh, where you know, a policy or a plan that was for the common good or one that would help people of color in Minneapolis was quashed or resisted by white people in Minneapolis? Well, I think you could take any example. Um, and it's one of the hallmarks that you're actually doing something that will change things for the better for people of color if there's a lot of white resistance, including from the left. Uh, one example would be school change, uh, seeing that plans to fundamentally change how we deliver education to young people of color, young black people, young Native American people. Uh, wholesale changes are always, always uh, fought. And that's not just true in Minneapolis, it's everywhere. But if you do mentorship programs, if you do summer jobs programs, all of which are good, all of which are necessary, none of which actually change the system, it just helps young people accommodate to the system that they're in. Those things are lauded and feted and funded and, and almost never a problem. So I'm curious, what has been the reaction to your op-ed? Because as you said, you know, white people don't want to feel um, uncomfortable, uh, I would say burdened by having the mirror thrust in their face. And you did so very boldly in a national newspaper. What kind of reaction did you get? One of the reasons I did it when I did it is because I know that 
for a lot of white people right now is a moment of reckoning. There's this aperture that has opened up where we're really thinking about race. We're thinking about our own whiteness and we're thinking about our complicity in the systems that create the results that we've seen decade after decade for people of color and indigenous people. So I chose that moment specifically. Even so, I anticipated a lot of blowback. I anticipated a lot of people being upset, a lot of trolls on social media, and I've been surprised that the, the feedback so far has been far more positive than negative. People reaching out to me to say they're really taking it to heart. I heard there's a number of synagogues in Philadelphia who are using the piece in their study groups to think about what they can actually do. Um, things like that are very heartening to me, but I knew that there was a moment, it won't be open forever, but between the impact of COVID and the murder of George Floyd and the uprisings that followed the murder of George Floyd, uh, white people, you know, protest works to move us further. It doesn't work forever, but it works in these moments. And if we take advantage of it, we can move the ball further down the field. I want to ask you more about the, the murder of George Floyd in one second, but I am curious. Um, you talked about how the aperture is open um, for white people. Do you think that this passion and enthusiasm and openness will last? No. Um, if past is prelude, I hope that it does. I shouldn't be so negative and cynical. Uh, if past is prelude, I think that there is uh, a, a moment in time, uh, there's, a, there's a period of time where we're really going to be able to make some progress, where people's minds have been opened. And I think for some people, once their minds have been opened, they will remain open. I think we've reached a number of people. That's what happened to me in 1992 in the uprisings following the verdict that exonerated the officers who killed George Floyd, George Floyd who, who beat Rodney King. Um, that happened to me. So I think some minds have been opened and they won't shut again. Do I think we've reached enough white people to change the systems faster than the systems can accommodate our revelations? No, not yet. And that is the work yet to be done. That's the that's the wheel to put to which I'm putting my shoulder and I'm inviting other white people to put their shoulder to that wheel as well, that we have a moment where we can do something and there's something in it for us. That's what gets lost for a lot of white people when we talk to each other about this work, uh, is that there's something in it for us to create racial equity, to pursue anti-racist policies, to change our systems so that they're not just serving us, uh, but that they're serving everybody well, including and especially people of color and indigenous people. I think there is a moment for that, but if past is prelude, it won't last forever. Well, you clearly have George Floyd top of mind, understandably so. So let me ask you, what was your reaction, your first reaction when you you heard the tragic news about what happened to George Floyd or even once the once the video came out? And then were you surprised by not just the reaction in Minneapolis, because you uh, when you were mayor, you went through a similar situation, but the global reaction to the killing of George Floyd? Um, I'm not surprised by the global reaction to the killing of George Floyd. Uh, I wouldn't have been surprised if there hadn't been one either. I think it is, I, I don't know enough about what the conditions have to be uh, for people to rise up because Lord knows uh, horrendous 
acts are being committed against uh, black people every day in this country in general and by police. Um, I think, you know, the, you asked what my reaction was. My immediate reaction was both grief and anger. And uh, I was sick to my stomach and uh, as upset as any thinking human being would be in a moment like that where something um, so tragic, so awful happens to another human being and you see it happening. Uh, I felt the way any human being feels deep down, uh, whether we admit it or not, when we see something like that happening. And I also, um, you know, I knew, I knew at least in Minneapolis what it would mean to the people there. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about what happened in, in 2015 when, when you were mayor. An unarmed black man was killed by, uh, by Minneapolis police. There were massive protests that ensued. There was an encampment around a police precinct that lasted 18 days. So given that experience, that experience as mayor, what were your thoughts um, what were, you, what were your thoughts in that time and what did your administration do and what lessons did you learn during that painful experience? My goal uh, in 2015 in the wake of Jamar Clark being killed by Minneapolis police officers was to, in the immediate aftermath for those 18 days, was to keep everybody as safe as possible. The, 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 the demonstrators, uh, uh, the neighbors, uh, people in the city, the officers who were there, was just to do my job to keep the city safe. But my goal was also to use the principles of 21st century policing to do it. Whether, you know, the reviews on that, uh, on the 21st uh, century policing principles are mixed. You know, people have mixed feelings about them, but at that time they were a way forward. I think I was the first mayor to apply them to a situation like that, which meant keeping a smaller footprint, which meant not just going out and arresting people, uh, not just clearing the encampment in front of the precinct. We knew that if we did that, there would be uprisings, there would be property damage, people would be injured, hurt, potentially killed. And um, that wasn't keeping the city safe. And so tried to work with the leaders of the demonstration. Uh, and, and I give the community a lot of credit. They did their uh, hard work and they did their part to keep it as peaceful a protest as possible for those 18 days. Um, and doing our best to negotiate a peaceful ending to that 18 days. Um, it was difficult. Uh, it was uh, necessary, and it, and in large measure, it worked. It didn't work perfectly. Uh, you know, there was a night where five people were shot, etc. But uh, we allowed people to exercise their First Amendment rights. We didn't try and quash that, and uh, we kept the people of the city safe at the same time. You know, one of the things that that. Um, the current mayor hasn't had to deal with, but I'm thinking in terms of the mayor of Portland, Oregon, having the introduction of unidentified federal officers uh, in his city doing things to protesters under the pretense of protecting a federal building. As a, as a former mayor, how do you view that? What Do you have concerns about that? Or are is that kind of federal intervention helpful? 
as someone who believes in the Constitution and as someone who, um, uh, or at least most of the Constitution, um, uh, as someone who believes in the right to govern, it is clear that President Trump has been pursuing an authoritarian agenda since before he got into office. I actually gave a speech about it in, in 2017, where I laid out what cities could do to oppose a president who was clearly using the playbook of authoritarianism uh, from the mid 20th century. And so to me, it's just another example of President Trump advancing an, uh, an authoritarian agenda. It's completely unacceptable. It's completely wrong. It's not how um, even the flawed America we live in should be. As well, mayor, me, uh, yeah. I feel the mayors who have to, who have to face that in their city. Uh, I'm sorry for, for stomping on your answer there, uh, Betsy. Let me follow up by just asking, is there a role for federal troops, uh, federal officers in communities? Is there an appropriate role? I, I am hard pressed to think of one, I have to be honest. I don't know that there is a difficult community situation that is made better by the presence of federal troops. I don't know uh, how f you have to be pretty far down the line of of worrying about your entire infrastructure collapsing. Uh, there's many, many miles to go before you get to a point where you even think about having uh, federal troops in your city. Uh, the, the things that you can and should do as a community and as leaders of a community before that moment uh, are what I believe and, and, and recommend that leaders focus on. I, I, I am hard pressed to think of a situation under which federal troops make sense. Uh, I want to bring in a question um, from um, a state we both uh, hold dear, Minnesota, and it comes from Dave. It's either Dave Michael or Dave Mich Michelle. If you're watching, I apologize for not getting your, your last name right, but he asked, what did you try for police reform that didn't work and what would you do differently? You know, by the time I left office, um, I had put into place as many of the things as were recommended, as many of the things that we could think of uh, to really change how uh, policing operated and governed. I haven't been around to see how all of those operated, so I can't tell you which ones specifically worked, uh, which ones specifically didn't work. I can say some of the policy changes we made in the department are what allowed Chief Arredondo to fire the officers who were present at the scene and didn't intervene. The duty to intervene policy um, came in when Chief Harto and I were there. Uh, and the body camera footage certainly helped. Uh, one thing that we did do was we had a collaborative public safety strategy where we, as a city, invested in the ideas of the community about how the community could invest in public safety in their own neighborhoods, funding neighborhood and community-based strategies that they devised and we funded as City Hall. I'm very proud of that as mayor. And I think those kinds of strategies are the sorts of things that people are uh, pushing right now to pursue in cities across the country. Uh, let me bring in this other question. Uh, this time it comes from California, from Hannah Valentine. And uh, Ms. Valentine asks, there is a tendency to rely on training to evoke behavioral change. This is ne necessary, but not sufficient. How can we tie the desired behaviors to institutional reward systems? 
Uh, that's absolutely true. Training is not going to make the difference. Um, it's how do you enforce the training? Do you have the managers and leaders in place, the sergeants, the lieutenants, the commanders, the inspectors in place to enforce that training? Uh, and one of the things that we did while I was uh, mayor is start measuring positive interactions between the community and police officers. Uh, most of the statistics about policing are about negative interactions, arrests, for example. And if you measure positive interactions, did we did we stop and did we stay with the family after you know the crisis part of the crisis was over to talk to them? Uh, you know, did we? Did we show up at community events and 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 build relationships there? And we started not only measuring those positive interactions, but using those as well uh, as a measurement for whether or not someone could be promoted. And that can make a difference. Again, I haven't been there the last few years to see how that's played out in the department, but it strikes me as one thing you can do to help move things forward. Betsy, you know, one of the mantras that came out of the protests out of Minneapolis, but then also nationwide, and it was painted on, on the street here in Washington after Black Lives Matter, someone painted, defund the police. What's your, what do you make of, of that, uh, defund the police? When you hear that, what was your, your initial response? And then what did that phrasing mean, come to mean for you? What that phrasing has come to mean for me is invest in community having a say in what public safety looks like in their neighborhoods. That's what people are asking for. And don't, you know, we get to stop asking police officers to be mental health workers and social workers and uh, you know, all the things that we ask them to do, teachers, uh, all the things we ask them to do that isn't about public safety. Well, it is about public safety, but they're not in a position to do those things. And what I hear community asking for is, let's invest in the things that will keep people safe that aren't about law enforcement. Uh, and if we do that, uh, we won't need as much money for law enforcement because we won't need law, as many law enforcement officers. That's that's what I hear. Um, and that was the call that I heard after Jamar Clark was killed. Uh, people would say, we can do this ourselves. We can keep our neighborhoods safe. And what I understood from that message is people want more of a say in what public safety looks like in their neighborhood and what it means to them to have a safe neighborhood. That's why I invested in those collaborative strategies. What do you you think safety means, what does it look like, and how can you and your neighbors provide that, and how can we as a city support that? And doing that, but writ large in a city, that's what defund the police has come to mean to me. You know, one of the things that came to mind for me in terms of people you know, articulating their frustrations with, with police departments, um, the lack of accountability, and a whole host of other issues was the power of police unions. When you were mayor of Minneapolis, how much of an obstacle or impediment were the police unions to anything that you tried to do to reform, reform the police department or to at least turn what you've been talking about into action? 
Well, I would invite anybody watching to Google hashtag Pointergate if you want to know about my relationship with the Minneapolis Police Federation. Um, early in my time as mayor, uh, I had run on a platform of, of, of transforming policing. I had run on a platform of accountability uh, and was working on that from the get-go. And um, uh, if you Google hashtag Pointergate, you'll find that I was told that I was uh, trafficking with gang members because I took a photo with a young African-American man one day when we were doing get out the vote work. Uh, it became a national meme how ridiculous it was. And it, uh, that that's a funny example. But, you know, the union would come in and, and, and try and quash any of the reforms that we were doing. Um, and they weren't shy about it. They weren't saying, oh, that's not what we're doing. They would say, that's exactly what we're doing. We don't think it's a good idea. Uh, and that's, I think, the experience of, of most mayors around the country um, is that the union is a, a large impediment. Now, I will say it's dangerous to assume, to, to say, well, the union gives white people in cities a uh, way out to say, well, it's not us, it's the union. Look, if all the wealthy white liberals in all the cities in the country decided that policing needed to transform, it wouldn't matter. Uh, I mean, it would matter. It would be a data point and a point of negotiation what the union thought or wanted, but it would happen. Uh, and, and the fact that we don't, as white liberals, strive for that systemic change is, is what I was writing about in that opinion piece, is that, uh, look, we don't, we don't rise up ourselves and say, this has got to change and I'm willing to change with it. We say, this has got to change, so you all over there take care of it. You know, I, I, I'm, that's rueful laughter. I'm not laughing because what you said was was funny. You know, I, I'm glad you brought in your answer, brought it back to, to white liberals, because I'm sitting here and I'm thinking and wondering, you know, the president has been spending a lot of time um, talking about the civil unrest in the country, talking about crime, particularly in Chicago, constantly, be, you know, beating the drum about law and order and safety. Um, we had the, the most visible moment. He's there in the Rose Garden talking about how he's the law and order president while split screen, we're watching federal law enforcement officers forcibly remove peaceful protesters from Lafayette Square. And so do you think these this playing on fear that the president clearly is using as a reelection strategy, will that work with white people, both white liberals, but white liberals, but white people in general, to make them choose law and order over Biden Harris. Well, I mean, law and order uh, for I mean, Lee Atwater's comes to mind here. Law and order is code for uh, needing to make sure black people stay in their place, right? So um, the president is continuing to use effective dog whistles for white racism uh, to try and say, hey, 
uh, white people, I will keep your whiteness as comfortable as possible uh, while not allowing, you know, racist trope after racist trope after racist trope about people of color uh, and indigenous people. So, you know, the, the call to law and order isn't merely a call to law and order. The call to law and order is a call, you know, it's like Avengers assemble for racism. So he, will that work with white people? Uh, we'll see. Um, you know, white people in general haven't voted for the Democratic candidate uh, in, I don't know, 50 since years? 19, since 1964. Thank you. Since 1964. Uh, there's a couple of exceptions where white women uh, voted in the majority for the Democratic candidate, and that's about it. And so it, it will... I think whether or not the, how unusual this current moment is, how unusual the agenda of this president is, using the levers of the federal government to uh, pursue authoritarianism, uh, whether or not that has penetrated to white folks, first we'll see that. The other thing is we're in a moment, COVID especially, yes, the uprisings have opened up a lot of white people's eyes, but COVID has revealed our systems to not work particularly well for a whole bunch of white people either. Um, it has revealed that the systems were mostly set up for elite white people uh, and not working class and poor white people. And I think a lot of eyes have been open to that during the COVID crisis with so many people losing jobs, with so many people in difficulty and the, the response from the federal level being so terrible um, and people dying. I think, you know, we we've got I don't know how many days till the election, but so few days to the election, I'm not sure that aperture will close before people are done voting. So my hope is that there will be a lot more white people this time around who understand that the current president is not in our corner. Um, uh, he is not in the corner of anybody but himself uh, and very elite white people and white nationalists as far as I can tell. So then, just a couple days ago, we uh, found out who uh, the presumptive Democratic presidential nominee, Joe Biden, had chosen to be his running mate, California Senator Kamala Harris. Your reaction to the Biden-Harris ticket now? Great. Yay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very excited. I'm very excited. Um, to have Senator Harris on the ticket uh, 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 just because she's Senator Harris and uh, because it's exciting for me to have uh, uh, a black woman and a Southeast Asian woman uh, on the ticket. That's amazing. I'm, I'm not sure I ever thought I'd see that in my lifetime. Uh, and, and here we are. Uh, but it's going to be even more exciting when she wins. You're confident. That's a nice segue into the, the the last question I was going to ask you, and that is, how might the selection of of Senator Harris uh, improve Joe Biden's chances of of winning Minnesota? Hillary Clinton won the state in 2016, but just by a point and a half. Uh, could he do better this November? Is it the selection of Harris, or is it sort of the the confluence of everything? that um, makes it possible for Joe Biden to do better in 2020? I think the selection uh, of Senator Harris 
will help him do better. Uh, I think it will draw to the polls people who weren't necessarily drawn to the polls in 2016. I am hoping uh, the performance of the current president also does that. Because look, the election in November, yes, it's a choice between two candidates, but it's also really fundamentally a choice between democracy, the hope of democracy, and fascism. That's what's, that's what's on the ballot in November. And so my hope is whatever people feel about Biden-Harris, they understand that uh, that ticket is a better choice than the ticket we've been living with for the last almost four years, which is, uh, you know, America will collapse under the weight of this man's uh, terrible policies and terrible treatment of Americans. I actually lied, Betsy. I do have one more question, and this is, really is the final question. And to bring it back full circle, I can imagine there might be some white liberals who are watching this live stream now or watch it later on WashingtonPostLive.com. What would be your message to them, to white liberals who might be offended by what, what you've said and what you said to them about their role in all this in the New York Times op-ed you wrote. Everything I'm doing is an invitation to white people for us, white liberals, for us to something better than what we're settling for right now. That the comparison set for our success is not, are we doing better uh, than people of color, or even are we doing better than we were before? Our comparison set is the world without racism. We as white people and white liberals, we would be doing better in a world without race and racism and without our whiteness. It's a better world. The, our life outcomes would be better if we aren't swayed by the moral argument that it's just plain wrong. Uh, that our systems are set up to benefit us over other people and our, and we are very devoted to our comfort in keeping it that way. Uh, and we are trained to be devoted to that comfort. We, we, we are socialized into that role. It's just plain wrong. If that doesn't move us, the picture of a world without racism is a picture with us in it doing better than we're doing now. And the invitation isn't to lose something great that we have now for something worse. It's an invitation to reclaim something we've lost, our humanity, uh, which we agreed to lose uh, in, in the process of becoming white, to reclaim our humanity and to get a better world out of the deal. That's my invitation to you, is to examine that, to do that work, and to believe that when we talk to each other as white people about it, we can invite each other to a better world. Former Minneapolis Mayor Betsy Hodges, thank you very much for being here today. You're welcome, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com dot com.